Thomas is going to read James chapter 3 for us, but before he does, um, and if you have your Bibles and want to open it to that, uh, let's just pray that God will open our hearts. God, thank you for bringing us your word, and we pray that as we read it, that you would open our ears to hear it and our hearts to understand. In your name we pray, amen. James 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouth of horses to make them obey us. We can turn the whole animal, take ships by example, all through they are so large and are driven by strong winds. They are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, tongues is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole whole body, sets the course of one's life on fire, and it is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals Birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a relentless evil full of deadly poison. When the tongue, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise. Come praise and cursing my brothers and sisters. This should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Them show it by their good wisdom, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, or do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven by ages earthly, unspiritual, demonotic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, 
then peace, love, and considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemaker who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Thank you, Thomas. Good morning. It's good to be here this morning in person, worshiping together. Now, I don't know what this week has been like for you, but for me, it has been a difficult week. Working in long-term care during this pandemic has been exhausting, and this week's decision not to renew Anita's contract for our children's ministry program has been difficult for our family to process. I know that this past year and a half have been difficult for everyone. The pandemic has thrown everything off, and now, on top of the usual challenges of life, Things that we never dreamed we would be doing two years ago are part of everyday life. Families are fighting about vaccines and mask wearing. We wonder what is fear and what is common sense. What is our responsibility to stand up for what we believe? And when do we submit to the rules and regulations that our leaders and governments are putting into place. And then there's the discussion on climate change that is happening right now. What do we do? What are we willing to give up? And meanwhile, life continues. Illnesses, physical and mental. Making ends meet stresses at work, broken relationships, trying to take care of ourselves and our families. Life can be hard. Through all of it, we find moments of joy. We see God show up in unexpected ways, and we trust that God will bring us through. So we get up on Sunday morning, and we come to church, or we participate online, And we want this place to be a beacon of hope, a refuge, and a place we can come before God with our whole hearts. And often church is exactly that. But sometimes it isn't. Sometimes we come to church and we realize that most of the same issues out there have followed us in here. We still disagree about what to do about vaccines and mask wearing. We still at times hear the decisions made by leadership and wonder if it's the right one. We still sometimes feel deflated and have to figure out when we need to stand up for what we believe and when we submit to what has been put in place. Church is hard and church can be messy. And we have this idea that church should be different. Church is where God is. It should be good. In my work as a chaplain, I talk with all the people who move into our homes about their spiritual history, and I've heard so many stories about people who used to attend church, but they don't anymore. For some, it just happened. Life 
happened and priorities changed and they just stopped going. But other times it's because something happened at church. They were hurt or they thought decisions made were wrong or they experienced that everyone there were hypocrites. People who preached one thing and lived out another. Please don't tune me out yet. I know this all seems dark and difficult, but I promise you there is hope. This place, this people, this community of people, this church, life does not stay in an experience of darkness. Stay with me for a little while in the messiness of church and life, and we will experience grace. I know this because I've lived it, I've experienced it, I've read about it. In fact, we are in the middle of a series on the book of James from the Bible that speaks into our lives today. Even though it was written so many, many years ago, and many things about life has changed, our world looks vastly different than it did when James was written. We don't know exactly when James was written, like many things, scholars disagree about when it was. They didn't date things exactly the way we would do now. But there are strong indications that it was written between 40 AD and the Jerusalem Council that is mentioned in the book of Acts chapter 15. So around 10 to 30 years after Christ's death and resurrection, Now, at that time, it was not easy to be a Christian. The pressure to reject the way, as it was called, came from many different places. The Roman government, although allowing their conquered nations to have religious freedom, felt threatened by Christians. And the Jewish religious leaders believed that Christians were misusing the scriptures and committing grievous sins in worshiping Christ as Lord and God. Today, many Christians tend to idolize or idealize the early church. We read in Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, and everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number those daily who were being saved. We read that and we long for those days. And those were amazing days of joy and rest and worship and fellowship. And, but we have to keep in mind, too, that in these early days of the church, they thought that Jesus was going to come back any day, any moment. As it turned out, waiting for Christ's return was going to be a marathon and not a sprint. So the church had to figure out how it was going to navigate the Christian life. The early church, too, struggled and disagreed. 
they were facing the pressures from outside the church, they also had in disagreements, arguments, and bickering inside the church. And James writes this letter to address these issues. He longs to see the church living out the wisdom from heaven. And so he writes a letter to guide the people in their practice of faith in Jesus Christ. But sometimes James can seem like an impossible book, full of impossible instructions, whose aim is to drain out any joy of life. The author can seem like a strict teacher, lecturing a group of students, maybe looking over their glasses, shaking their finger, on rules and regulations that they have to follow or they risk expulsion. But then saying, feel joyful, be happy, because life is about doing the right thing and not doing the wrong thing. This feeling that you can get, and I know my kids kind of got it as we are reading the book, kind of reminds me of the 70s rock group five-man electrical band song, Signs. The chorus goes, and I'm not going to sing it because I'm just not. Sign, sign, everywhere a sign, blocking out the scenery, breaking my mind, do this, don't do that, can't you read the sign? Sometimes when you just read over the book of James, it can seem that he never mentions grace or Jesus' love. And as a preacher who is taught to always preach grace out of every text, it can be a challenge. And this has been a challenge that the church has faced throughout the history of the church. Even Martin Luther, who we remember today, um, 504 years ago, nailed his theses to the church door. He didn't like this book of James. He called it an epistle of straw. He wanted, he did not understand how it became part of our canon, of our Bible. He thought that it stressed too much on deeds and actions rather than, and worried that James was preaching a gospel of works rather than the gospel of righteous, of faith through grace alone. He never completely abandoned it as scripture, but he did when he was putting his translation of the Bible together, he kind of put it in the back of the Bible. So feeling the weight of the do's and don'ts of this passage, while we believe that, grace, that faith, that salvation is through grace alone, can kind of leave James sitting on the sidelines of the Christian scriptures. But as we struggle with the messiness of church life, James becomes an important part of God's word to our lives. Pastor Nicole and Pastor Brian, in our two weeks on James 1 and 2, preached on the instructions in grace found in the first two chapters of James. And today we read James 3. And there are many instructions in this passage as well. But most of the chapter is devoted to one thing, the tongue. The tongue is a very important part of our bodies. It helps us to eat and to talk. Now, according to Google, 
The tongue is made up of eight muscles that are interwoven together and make the most flexible muscle we have in our bodies. And it is the only one that acts independently of our skeleton. We can use our tongue all day without getting tired. If we used our biceps as much as we use our tongue, we'd be exhausted. I'm thinking James thinks that it would be better if our tongues were more muscles like the other ones in our bodies. Because if they were, we might be a little bit more careful about what we say. James uses great illustrations to get his point across about the tongue. He writes about controlling horses with bits in their mouths, large ships that are steered by a small rudder, the spark of a fire, a spark of just one little match that starts a whole forest fire. He talks about humans being really good at taming animals, but not so good at taming our tongues. Fresh and salt water cannot come from the same spring. And he says all these things to say, watch what you say. If James was writing this message to today's church, the focus would not just be on the tongue. He would also need to focus on our fingers. When talking about James 3 with Anita this week, she thought James would have talked about the taming of the thumbs. In our digital world, sometimes the most hurtful things are not said out loud with our mouths, but are typed on computers and cell phones. Today, we need to tame our tongue and our thumbs. There are other instructions in James 3 as well. There are instructions about what not to do. Don't become teachers without realizing the power that you have when you teach. Cursing and praising, boasting and denying the truth, envy and selfish ambition. And there are instructions about what to do, to show wisdom through what you do in your life, to show wisdom and humility, to be pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, impartial and sincere. Now, these are not new instructions. James was not just making them up on his own. He roots his teachings firmly in the wisdom tradition. The, Proverbs, the book of Proverbs has multiple sayings about one's tongue. Proverbs 12, verse 18 says, The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And Proverbs 13, verse 3, those who guard their lips preserve their lives, but those who speak rashly will come to ruin. And Proverbs 18, 21a, the tongue has power of life and death. Jesus also gives instructions like these. Luke 6, verses 43 to 45 says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs, pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings out good things of the good stored up in his heart. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And in Matthew 15, Jesus says, What goes into someone's mouth does not, make, does not defile them, 
but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. The instructions throughout the book of James can be found throughout Jesus' teaching. And you know, many cultures have picked up on this wisdom of controlling one's tongue. Luke Chung and Andrew Spurgeon, in their commentary on James, mention a saying that comes from India. Even a frog endangers itself when it opens its mouth. They write that in India, during the rainy season, frogs croak to announce their presence to potential mates. Cobras and other snakes hear the croaking, follow the sound, and eat the frogs. Then in James 3, there are lists of the two kinds of wisdom. And that can be found in other scriptures too. Paul often has lists throughout his letters that describe an unspiritual wisdom and the wisdom that comes from God. Galatians 5, 19 to 25. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, fractions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So we know the good works we are supposed to do. And we know that James says in verse 2, we stumble in many ways. We are far from the ideal community Jesus want, James wants his readers to be. We are a room full of broken people in need of God's grace. But there is hope. In fact, it is in acknowledging that we are a people in need of God's grace, in need of God's wisdom. It is there that we find hope and our way through the messiness of life and church. It is in James 3, verse 14, where we find hope. It says, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Now you may look at me and say, Wow, you really have had a difficult week. But let me explain why I find hope and grace in this passage. It's how we approach it. Usually we try and hide things in our lives and do not measure up, that do not measure up to what we're supposed to be. Just like kids who like to hide the mess in their room. And my son is coming up here right now because I made this illustration and then last night when I was putting him to bed, we found this sweater. So all three of my kids have worn this sweatshirt and it says on there, how to clean your room. And it has illustrations of stick people cleaning their rooms. So the first step, strategically study your mess. Second, organize it into one big pile. Three, kick everything under your bed. <laughs> that is how 
we sometimes deal with the ugliness in our hearts. We strategically study it, we kind of gather it all together, and then we hide it away. After all, we are trying our best. We're not doing anything really bad, so we just keep going. We put on our Sunday best, and we show the world only the good. And most of the time, this works, until it doesn't. Someone catches us saying some, one thing, but living out another, and they label us a hypocrite. But grace is found in admitting our failings. Hope is kindled when we acknowledge that we do not have it all together. It means we can put our effort into asking for the wisdom of heaven rather than protecting our image. It means that we are opening our lives for God to change us. It means we can live as a people of integrity. We know the way we want to be, and we are on a journey to act in that way every day doesn't mean that we need to get into a contest of who has sinned the most. Verse 14 says, do not boast about it. But we also do not deny that even though we are a people covered by God's mercy, we are not perfect. Some of the ways we already do this in, as a community is to ha- have a time of confession Pastor Nicole led us in this confession earlier this service. We also do it on those Sundays when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. When we remember Jesus' death, we remember that we are a people in need of forgiveness. And these are good practices to help us live a life full of the wisdom that comes from heaven. The Israelites in the Old Testament had a practice of bringing sacrifices to the tabernacle or the temple to show God the state of their hearts. One of the sacrifices that they would bring was the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And for that sacrifice, they'd bring an animal and three types of bread made with oil, olive oil, and some had yeast in them and some without. And the person would come and they'd bring the sacrifice when they had something to praise God for, right? That's in the name, thanksgiving. But they also brought it when they had a sin to acknowledge before God. I find this interesting. A sacrifice of thanksgiving when you wanted to acknowledge a sin. Why thanksgiving? Because they knew that God would forgive them. They didn't have to be afraid of what would happen. They knew God was a loving God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We acknowledge our sins and shortcomings in a context of knowing God's love and faithfulness. This is good. And yet life and church are still messy because some sins are obvious and easy to identify. It's easy to confess and receive forgiveness. But other times, things are not so clear-cut. What one person thinks is okay, another might be convinced that it needs repentance. Or maybe there isn't even one right way to deal with a situation. But there are people who feel very strongly one way or another. 
Thomas Merton was an American Trappist monk, a writer, theologian, mystic, poet, social activist, and scholar of comparative religion. And he wrote this prayer. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean I actually, I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, although I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always. Though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are ever with me and will never leave me to face my perils alone. Let me reread a few lines. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. In situations where Christians struggle with each other about the right way to go, the attitude of this prayer leaves room for God's grace to settle into our relationships and into the life of the church. When we, both leaders and attenders, acknowledge that we could be wrong, that our actions could be motivated by selfish ambition or envy, then we open up ourselves to God's grace. Merton also writes, but I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you, and I hope that I have that desire in all that I do. We may think we have things figured out, that we are in God's will, so we want to stand up and fight for what we believe is right. But there's a chance we are missing a piece of the picture. Instead, God invites us to be open to other ways God is working in the world. And this displays humility that comes from wisdom. People of hope, we are a people who are seeking to follow God's will in our lives and in the church. In the messiness of church life, we can take comfort in knowing that God's grace covers us. At times, bitter envy and selfish ambition rear their ugly heads in our lives. When we acknowledge this fact without boasting about it, we open ourselves up to the grace that God longs to pour into our lives. Let's ask now for the wisdom that comes from heaven by the grace of God alone. Our Lord God, we have no idea where we are going. We do not see the road ahead of us. We cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do we really know ourselves. And the fact that we think that we are following your will does not mean that we are actually doing so. But we believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And we hope that we have that desire in all that we are doing. And we know that if we do this, you will lead us by the right road, 
although we may know nothing about it. Therefore, we trust you, God, always. Though we may seem lost and in the shadow of death, we will not fear, for you are ever with us and will never leave us to face our perils alone. Amen.